begin by thanking our uh, praise team and musicians for leading us uh, in worship. Uh, thank you guys for uh, that, blessing my heart and encouraging my soul. I, I just want to put a plug in for the small groups. Uh, the sign-up sheets are out there, so sign up and uh, get involved with uh, some people and you want to find some connections and get to grow in your walk with Christ, uh, small groups is a great way to do that. We have a lot of different options, uh, some on Sunday night and some on Wednesday nights, so please uh, take advantage of those things. I'd invite you to pray with me if you would. Father, you gave your son, our Lord Jesus, and his name is a strong and mighty tower as the writer of Proverbs says, the righteous run into it and they are saved. In fact, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And we come to you in our weakness, we come to you in our frailty and ask that you would meet us here. And we ask that we might meet you here by your grace and for your glory, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful truths from your law that would inform us and would transform us into the image of Christ, that we might bring glory to you, our Heavenly Father. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I have this ongoing debate with a young guy about who is the greatest NBA basketball player of all time, okay? So now, he would contend that LeBron James is the, the greatest basketball player of all time. Uh, LeBron was ranked fourth among the, the top athletes in ESPN's uh, poll in, for the 21st century. I am still holding firm that Michael Jordan is the greatest NBA basketball player of all time, and he was ranked number one in ESPN's 100 top athletes in the 20th century. But who's the greatest athlete of all times? The greatest athlete, not the greatest NBA player, the greatest athlete of all time. Well, I'm not, we're not going to get into that. I'm going to tell you who the greatest athlete is because he said so himself. Muhammad Ali, yeah, Muhammad Ali said so himself. I am the greatest, he said. Buzz like a butterfly, sting like a bee, the hand can't hit what the eye can't see. That's what Muhammad Ali said. But we could go on. I mean, who, who's the greatest artist of all time? So who's the greatest artist of all time? Who's the greatest philanthropist of all time? Who is the greatest musician of all time? Who is the greatest person of all time? Well, I began last week to make a case that Jesus Christ is arguably the greatest person who ever lived. And I'm sticking with it. Someone once wrote, and I quote, Jesus Christ came from the bosom of the Father to the bosom of a woman. He put on humanity that, he might, that we might put on divinity. He became the Son of Man that we might become the sons of God. He was born contrary to the laws of nature, lived in poverty, was reared in obscurity, and only once crossed the boundary of the land in which he was born, and that in his childhood. He had no wealth or influence and had neither training nor education in the world's schools. 
His relatives were inconspicuous and not very influential. In infancy, he startled a king. In boyhood, he puzzled the learned doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the billows, and he hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, and yet all the libraries of the world could not hold the books about him. He never wrote a song, and yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all the songwriters combined. He never founded a college, and yet all the schools together cannot boast of as many students as he has. He never practiced medicine, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors have healed broken bodies. Jesus Christ is the star of astronomy. He's the rock of geology. He's the lion and the lamb of zoology, the harmonizer of all discords, and the healer of all diseases throughout history. Great men have come and gone, and yet he lives on. Herod couldn't kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him, and the grave could not hold him. But this morning, I don't want you to take my word for it. I don't want you to take that man's word for it. I don't want you to take anybody's word for it except God's word for it. And so this morning, we're going to come back to Hebrews chapter 1. Where in verses 1 through 14, we're seeking to establish what the writer to the Hebrews is telling these Christians mostly. Some may be professing, but not really actually believing Christians. And, and a few pagans thrown in there uh, just for fun. He's telling them that Jesus Christ is the greatest. He's the greatest messenger. Greater than the prophets. That's what we looked at last week. Jesus Christ is the greatest master, as we see in verses 4 through 14, because he's superior to the angels. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to look with me at Hebrews chapter 1, and in this passage we learn that Jesus is greater than the angels as our superior master. There are seven Old Testament quotes in these few verses. And these seven quotes provide us with three good reasons why Jesus Christ is greater than the angels, why he's superior to them. Well, Jesus is the greatest. I'm going to read the text and we'll unpack the text. And verse 4 actually is the conclusion of verses 1 through 3 and the introduction to verses 5 through 14. And so I begin reading here in verse 3. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they, for to which of the angels has he ever said, did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when, he, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of, your, of, your, of his kingdom. And you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you 
with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning did lay the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old as a garment. And as a mantle, you will roll them up. And as a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for you? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who are set apart for salvation? Three reasons given in the text from seven Old Testament quotations as to why Jesus is the greatest. First, he's the greatest because he is our Heavenly Father's divine Son. Angels are created beings. Uh, They manifest themselves in the Scriptures sometimes as human beings, or at least visible forms looking like human beings. Sometimes they manifest themselves in other manifestations like the did in the tomb of Jesus. Bright lights and shining. They are grouped into orderly fashion. You can read Colossians chapter 1 and and Ephesians, and we see in Romans chapter 8, there's thrones and principalities and rulers, and there are different orders in their angelic caste system. They are given for judgment, they serve the purpose of protection, and they communicate God's message. Why is it important for these people, and even more important, why is it important for us to understand why angels, who according to Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9, or why Jesus, who according to Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9, was made for a little time lower than the angels. When he suffered and went to the cross, he was made for a time a little lower than the angels. Why is it important for us to know that he's really greater than them? Well, in the Hebrew way of thinking, angels were the pinnacle of created beings. They were the top drawer of God's creation. And God communicated his message, and he maintained that message through the mediation of angelic beings. So they were top drawer for the Hebrew people. They were the most important for the Hebrew people. And so the establishment of Jesus Christ, the supremacy of Christ over the angels, indicates that at least in some way, in their way of thinking, they were in danger of abandoning the truths of Christianity, which held Jesus as higher than the angels. And they were in danger of embracing or adopting some concept of some inferior concept that Jesus was somehow not quite measuring up, that he didn't measure what they needed, that an inappropriate level of superiority was being put on the angels. They had too much authority in their way of thinking. And so they were, again, remember the Hebrew people, the Hebrews who'd come to faith in Christ and those who weren't Christians but were in this group, they were in danger of going back because it was a real tough time. They were being persecuted for their faith. And so they were always being drawn back to what was comfortable and what they held to. What was their source of authority? I remember several years ago I was... Uh, sitting in front of a group of people, and I was making an oral defense 
of my ordination paper. I had written a long treaty of my convictions on doctrinal statements, and I had to go through a six-hour verbal back and forth of, you know, kind of like a defending what I had written on this paper. And at one point, I was defending a perspective that I had on an issue that I'm not going to label here, discuss here. And I, I cited several passages of Scripture that I felt were in support of my conviction. And one of the members of the ordination council took issue with my conviction on the point and said, I said, well, this is what I understand the Scripture. I don't care what the Scripture says, the guy said. That's wrong. My response to him was, I think you're taking a very dangerous position. To not care what the Scripture says. What is our basis of authority? Is it angelic teaching and angels and beings or the, some other system of religious system, tradition, that is the authority, or is it God's Word? And the truth of who Jesus is, that was the issue there, and I still think it's an issue today. Who is Jesus? What or whom do we hold as our highest authority? And so, masterfully, the writer of Hebrews takes something that they even held higher than angels which was the message of God delivered to them by angels and maintained through angelic work, the Word of God. And so seven times, the writer of Hebrews quotes the Scripture to prove to them that it is Jesus and not angels who are superior. And therefore, Jesus and Christ and Christianity is superior and therefore needs to be heeded and embraced. And that's what he did. Verses 4 and 5. Having become as much better than they, the first place he goes is the name of Jesus, which we sang about. The name of Jesus is superior. And in verses 4 and 5, it says in verse 5, For to which of the angels has he ever said? Now, now this is a question, and the answer of the question he gives is based upon the Scriptures. First, he quotes Psalm 2-7. And then he makes a quote of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, both applied to the person of Jesus. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, which is the end of, of verse 5 there. Jesus Christ is David's greater son. And to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me? Answer to the question is, none. To which of the angels has he ever said that? None. You see, the Scripture tells us that, the, that, that God made, that the angels are called sons of God. We go to Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 6. And here, uh, they're, they're sons of God, but they are not the Son of God. There's a difference. Only Jesus is the Son of God. And then he says they are never called begotten. The name which separates Jesus is Son or begotten of God. Now, that word, begotten, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. So he didn't just at one point become the Son of God. But when it says he was begotten of God, he's begotten in that sense, becomes the unique Son of God in this sense in two, by virtue of two different events. First is the incarnation. He becomes the begotten of God in the incarnation. In Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and 32, you will have a son, and you will call his name Jesus, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. 
to be called. He becomes begotten. Then he says, and today, in, in verse 5, today I have begotten you. Today, that word today speaks of a, maybe a, a time of an occasion where he's declared the Son of God. My mind runs to Romans chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He was the, he was the Son of God. He was declared the Son of God by virtue of his resurrection. The Son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead, which the resurrection and the ascension, he becomes the Son of God so that he can fully carry out all of his responsibilities as the Son in relationship to human beings. And so by virtue of his incarnation, by virtue of his resurrection, he is begotten of God, and the angels, it's not said of them because they don't relate to God in that way. They aren't that way related to Jesus. I like what... uh, a man by the name of Coleman says, he says, Hebrews understands Son of God to mean one with God. So that Son of God means complete participation in the Father's deity. Why was Jesus crucified? You can just write down John chapter 5, verse 18. He was crucified because he claimed to be the Son of God, making himself equal with God. And to the Jewish rabbis and teachers, that was blasphemy. And that's why he was crucified. But he is the Son of God. And to say that you're the Son of God is to say that you're equal with God. And that's the point that he's making here. The Son of God is equal with the Father, and therefore, if he's equal with the Father, then where does that put him in relationship to angels <laughs> who are created by Jesus and God the Father? And to every other created being, he is superior because he's the Father's divine Son. He's superior because he is our exalted ruler. In verses 6 through 9, and then I'm grouping verses 13 and 14 with 6 through 9, based upon the content, we see several indications that these verses point to Jesus as an exalted ruler. Verse 6, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world. Now, there's some discussion, commentators, some of your versions read, um, and he again brings him into the world. What does this again? Does it have to do with he's bringing him again? I, I tend to think it, it's a reference to the second coming, but I'm not going to die on that little hill. I just think that it refers to him bringing him again. He brought him in the incarnation. When he brings him again, then we see what happens in verse 6. The firstborn, the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. Well, it doesn't really matter because they're supposed to worship him now. But he is a rank that is given to him. Notice the text says, the firstborn. Well, when we use that term, that's why we need to understand the Bible terms. Because when we use the first term, we're talking about our oldest child, right? We have our firstborn, that's our oldest. That's not what the word means. It means the most important. It means preeminent. It has to do with order and not, uh, it has to do with rank and preeminence, not order. Okay? For he is the most important of all created beings. He is the monogenes, you know, he's the, the, he is the firstborn among creation. Some of you will recognize this person as Jim Mattis, General Jim Mattis. He was the, uh, he was the 
U.S. Central Command leader under President Barack Obama. But here's the deal. He's a high-ranking guy, right? High-ranking general. But guess what? He was subservient to the commander-in-chief. Angels are high-ranking created beings, but they are subservient to the commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ. Just as we are subservient to the commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ. Because of his rank, but also because of the reverence that he has shown. Look at verses 6 and 7, the end of verse 6. And let all the angels of God worship him. Reverence is shown in two ways to the Son. First of all, he's worshipped. The text says, and accurately translates, two different Old Testament passages from the Septuagint, which is the, uh, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It gets complicated, but anyhow. So if you went back to your Old Testament and look at Deuteronomy 32, you'd go, that is not what it says. And you looked at 90, Psalm 97, you say, well, I'm not exactly if that, sure that's what it says, but it's an accurate reflection of the Septuagint translation. And basically, it's saying that God's admonition, admonition is given to the angels that they should worship God. They should worship the Son. They should worship Jesus. You say, well, that was the Old Testament. And they were supposed to worship the Son back in the Old Testament. But it says, He says. It doesn't mean, it doesn't say He said. It says He says. It's an ongoing thing. It's to continuate. They're supposed to continually worship God or God's Son. But that's a confusing thing because who's supposed to be worshipped? God said, worship my Son. But if you read the New Testament, you read the Old Testament, Acts chapter 12, verse 23, Revelation 19, verse 10, don't worship me. Human beings are not supposed to be worshipped. Angels are not supposed to be worshipped. Only God is to be worshipped. So if God says that you should worship my son and only God is to be worshipped, then God's son must be God. I hope I didn't go through that too fast. If God says only God is to be worshipped and God says God's son should be worshipped, then God's son must be God or he wouldn't be worshipped. And he is to be worshipped. John declares also that the Son is to be honored equally with the Father in John chapter 5, verse 23. He is also served. That's how he is worshipped. The Old Testament quote of Psalm 104, verse 4, contrasts the angels. That's the, uh, if you look at verse 7, and, the angel, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. You know, that's kind of a confusing verse. Isn't it? Winds and flames of fire, and the angels are supposed to be winds and flames of fire. Well, uh, hopefully, I'll try to understand it. Basically, this is a quote of Psalm 104, verse 4. And it contrasts the status of angels with that of the Son. The angels are servants, and the Son is the sovereign creator whom they serve. They are ministers, notice it says that, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers. Now, whose are they? Look at the text. Whose are they? His. So he possesses them. They serve him. And they are his winds and his messengers, which is a description of, of their, not of their constitution. It doesn't mean angels are like our wind and angels are fire even though sometimes the angels appear looking, you know, bright lights and stuff. No, it's not a matter of their constitution. It, it is a, a matter of their contribution. 
and their divine place. Just like wind and, and fire is, is a, a works strongly and powerfully and quickly, so the angels are serving God with strength and quickness and power. They serve the Son. Their divinely placed or in ordained place in creation is servants of the Son. If you work for somebody else, unless you're self-employed, you work for somebody else, you get up, you go to work, you seek to serve them, you seek to do it quickly, you seek to do it with all your power, all your might, the best you can, to the best of your ability. You are a servant, you're not the boss. And Jesus is the boss. Then he is, because of his reign and his rule, which he has given, you look at verse 8, but of the Son, he says, again, the contrast between their serving and him being the sovereign. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The angels worship and serve, but the Son, who is the creator, is the ruler. When, uh, when Psalm 45, verse 6 is applied here, to the Son, the reality of Jesus' deity is unquestioned. Look at the text. It says, your throne, O God. Oh, is Jesus God? Well, this verse just says he's God. Your throne, O God, is forever. The emphasis, I think, is more on his royalty and, his, and their servility. The contrast is between the royalty of of Jesus and the servitude of the angels, not as much about his deity and their frailty, although he is superior to them on both counts. He is royal and he is divine. They are servants and they are frail. And he makes the point here without question. Oh, where does the Bible say that Jesus is God? Right here. Um, other places as well. John 10, verse 30, and I can. Uh, John 1, 1, and a lot of different places uh, say that he is. But here it says, your throne, O God, speaking of Jesus, is forever. Forever. Which also reminds the angels that they're never going to reverse the role. You know, there's not an election in God's economy. So you, you, you can't change it. It's not like, oh, well, his reign and his rule is forever. So wherever you are in this grand scheme of God's ordained thing, that's where you stay. You don't become God. He's God. We are the servants. The angels are the servants. And then there's this righteousness issue. He possesses it in verse 8. This is a quote of Psalm 45, verse 7. We learn that his righteousness is a fixture. Righteous scepter means that he's ruling with this staff thing, which means he points it. It's righteous. That's his fixed thing. But it's also the foundation because it says in the text therefore, that you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. That's the essence of his character. And the foundation of Christ is initiated at his ascension. He took this throne. And it is perpetuated through what will be the millennial kingdom. And then it is consummated in the eternal reign where his righteousness rules. It always has and it always will. He's there. And he is by virtue of it. And then it says something interesting at the end of verse 9. That therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Uh, partakers is literally the translation. 
and you could see a reference to it in chapter 3, verse 14, means believers. So Jesus on his throne is anointed with the oil of gladness. He's celebrating as the king, and we get to celebrate with him, but our celebration will be a little less than his celebration. It made me think of the, some of you seen the movie Blind Side. I remember when uh, our, Cheryl was growing up, that was like one of her favorite movies, you know, the Blind Side. Blind Side. And so here's a picture, literally, of Michael Orr when he was drafted. And if you don't know the story behind the Blind Side, that's fine. Uh, Michael Orr was an adopted kid, uh, run down in this family in uh, uh, Memphis, adopted him. I think it's Memphis. Anyhow, he became an NFL players draft the NFL. Now, can you imagine the Tui family? They're like thrilled out of their gourd that this uh, son of theirs went from rags to riches and he got a, you know, a draft the NFL. But I'll tell you what, I'll bet you Michael Orr was more thrilled than they were. You know? And Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning as anointed with gladness because of his position. And I think, well, so... Why is that important for us? Do you understand that we as believers, if you're here and you trust in Jesus Christ and his death and that alone is a payment for your sins, then we will join him as partakers in this eternal and we join him in this kingdom. The riches and the glory and the power and the blessings of this kingdom are ours now and will be fully realized. There's so much Reward is so much more fulfilling. It's a reality, not like Judaism. That's what they were going back to. It's not like paganism. It's not like legalism. Some you got to jump through all the hoops, and then you think, maybe I'll get to God. If I do enough good stuff, maybe I'll make it. That's what the world offers. That's the religious systems of the world. It's not like some potpourri of religious systems where you just pick a little pantheism and you pick a little uh, Buddhism and you pick a little Islam and you pick a little Christianity and you throw it in a stew and you stir it around and you kind of pick and choose what you want. That doesn't do it. Because Jesus is the greatest. His name, there is no other name. Whereby we must be saved. And when we're saved by his name, we join him as partakers in his kingdom and are experience the joy of gladness in that kingdom because of his righteousness. I remember as a boy, we, we took a vacation, if you can call it that. Uh, we, we went to my, my great-great-grandfather's farmstead. There was no running water. Uh, there was a big oak tree, or maple tree, and when we took a bath, we pumped the water, and then we heated it on the stove, and then we went out and put it in a big uh, calf tank and under the tree, and that's how we took a bath. When you went to the restroom, you went outside to the biffy, we called it, to the outhouse. We spent about three days there, Walking up and down the road, it's out near the Roseman Covered Bridge. Some of you know where the Roseman Covered Bridge is or the bridges of Madison County. And uh, we caught bullheads out of the pond and fried them on the uh, thing. And, you know, that was our vacation. Well, then when I was a junior in high school, we rented an RV, uh, not, not like... Robin Williams, but we, we rented an RV, and we went out west. We went to Yellowstone, and 
And we went to Oregon and Bend, Oregon, and down to Crater Lake National Park Monument, and then we went to see the Redwoods, and then we came across from Sacramento into Reno and back home. Now, which one of those things you think kind of tripped my trigger, yanked my chain, and floated my boat more? Uh, fishing in the pond at, uh, you know, with no running water? Or seeing the redwood trees? You see, folks, we can settle for dog food, or we can dine in a feast at the Lamb's Supper if we're trusting in Jesus. That's the difference. Because He is the greatest, and because He is the greatest, He offers the greatest salvation. He offers the greatest hope that we can have ever. And finally, because of his rightful place. And now I jump from verse 9 to verses 13 and 14. And I do it intentionally based on the content. Because I think the content is the same. Because once again, the son's exalted position is reiterated in verse 13. And I love the question, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? Jesus applied this to himself in Matthew chapter 22, verse 44. He said it at the Father's right hand. No angel ever invited to this exalted place of power and authority where he awaits the final defeat of his enemies, which will be Satan. And that final defeat comes at the end of the millennial kingdom when Satan is loosed for a time and then he is bound and cast into the lake of fire. And then Jesus will have his feet kicked up, resting on the footstool of his enemies. He awaits it. From the time of his ascension, his resurrection and his ascension, he is seated. Only he will come back and return, and then he will reign again forever and ever. And that is the picture. He's honored because he's seated on the throne. And the angels, they're just kind of serving. Notice what it says in verse 14. Are they not all sent out as ministering spirits, sent to render service? Now, this is what gets me. Don't miss this. Who do they serve? Yeah, they serve Christ. They serve those who are what? Look at the text. Set apart for salvation. That's kind of cool. Angels serve believers. They serve us. By God's ordained authority, they are serving those who are, those who are set apart from salvation, saved from the power and the, and the penalty of sin that, that we're believers now. They're serving us, and they're, they're serving those of us who one day will experience deliverance from the presence of sin. Wow, that's kind of cool. I don't know how they're doing all that, but uh, they're watching over us. You know that song, Angels Watching Over Me, O Lord? You know, some of you remember that song, some of you don't, that's okay. Angels watching over me, oh Lord. Yeah, they are. They're watching over us. That should give us some encouragement. So he is proven to be superior because he is our Father's divine Son. He is our exalted ruler. And finally, because he is our eternal creator. Verses 10 and, and through 12. The writer applies the, the sixth quote in, uh, of Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27 to the Son who laid the foundation of the world. That's what it says in verse 10. And you, Lord, in the beginning did lay the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. He laid the foundation and he created the world. 
Again, Christ's deity is revealed not because he is not created, he's the creator. John MacArthur put it this way, uh, one of the greatest proofs of Jesus' divinity is his ability to create. His eternal self-existence and ability to create distinguish him without question from every other created being. He made us. He made the angels, so he is the greatest authority. But the contrast here in these verses is not only that he created, but he is eternal and unchangeable as opposed to the temporal and the deteriorating creation that he made. He's eternal. What he made is passing away. Get this, the sun. Now think about it. I, I went off last week on some sort of a tirade. I'm going to do it again a little bit. But I'm just fascinated by the, the realities of creation. The sun spoke into being the properties of atomic energy. Half-lives and density and, you know, valence bonds and all these bonds that hold things together. He set the stars in place. He numbered them. He called them all by name. And they stay there until he's done with them. He created the pulsars and the quasars and the black holes, you know, that we, we study about. I find it fascinating that he, he designed the, the human foot to withstand 25 tons of pressure during an average day. That he's the one who made a single tree in the rainforest able to sustain over 10,000 species of plant and animal life. One tree in the rainforest. He is the one who is the one who enables the Australian desert toad to live for five years in its little cocoon until the next rainstorm. Now, you don't do, you know, there's not a second chance on that deal. You know, it's not like, well, we're going to give this toad a few uh, thousand years to adapt so that he can survive. No, you either do or you don't. You either dead or you're not. I'm sorry, you, you are dead or not. Sorry, kids, I'm not. I did learn English. Uh, sometimes I can't uh, speak it, but I do know proper English sometimes. You see, our eternal God, He gave horses the ability to smell fear. God, the Son, did this. And all that He created is subservient. It's passing away. He is eternal. Everything else is rotting or corroding or being corrupted and it will perish. They, it will perish, he says, verse 11. They will perish, but you remain. As a freshman in high school, I went to a, a Beanie Cooper football camp. Okay, So I, was, I liked playing American football, so I went to the Beanie Cooper football camp at Buena Vista University. And while I was at the Beanie Cooper football camp, he was a coach at South Dakota or something like that, a big-name coach. So he wasn't there, actually, so somebody else was there. But they called it the Beanie Cooper camp, so I was there. And I worked my tail off so that I could win the coveted prize. Every day they gave the Mr. Hustle red T-shirt with Mr. Hustle written across the back of it. And I got my Mr. Hustle t-shirt. And I wore that shirt all the time. I wore it until it was ratted and torn and teared and ripped out. And you wouldn't even have been able to know it was a t-shirt, hardly, because it was there. Until it got discarded. 
all that we have, plants and animals and people, we die out. Stars burn out. Stuff rusts out, rots out, and wears out. But God's Son lives forever. And those who are related to Him also live forever. This body is wasting away. All that we own or wear or possess is rotting and going to fall away. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 3 says it's going to burn. You know, uh, it's going to burn. But our eternal creator is superior to the angels. He's superior because he's, he's the, the Father's divine son. He is our exalted ruler. He is our eternal creator. And then I come to the end and I say, so what? Okay, that's nice, you know. I mean, he, the, the Bible says he's greater, but what difference does it make to me? What difference does it make to you that he is the Father's divine son? And he is our exalted ruler and he is our eternal creator. Well, a few things come to my mind. First of all, what do the angels do in the presence of this son? They worship him. So I think descend would be a good response. How can I descend in worship before this great creator God, my Savior? And how do we serve him? How do we worship him through service? Isn't that the angels? They worship him and they serve him. So we, we descend through worship, which is translated into serving in ways that, that humble us, in ways that prove that we don't think of ourselves more greatly. I think about our guys going to Haiti. This is, as a friend of mine says, it's called expensive worship. Expensive worship takes us out of our comfort zone. It takes us out of our wheelhouse. It takes us out of what we think is good and great and grand. And folks, we are bent on comfort. And we descend and worship God when we worship Him through serving. So think about that. Where can I serve? I mean, everybody who shows up on Wednesday night and, you know, I tell you what, it's, it's, a, it's a madhouse around here. I mean, it's, it's just kind of a zoo. And, you know, it kind of throws some of you out of your comfort zone, especially the older we get. You know, it's kind of like, we kind of like, kind of like it quiet. We kind of like everything in its place. It's like, come here on Wednesday night, get thrown out of your comfort zone, and engage in expensive worship. Because you've got to descend out of your wheelhouse. Or whatever it is. It may be going to Haiti. It may be singing worship on the praise team. It may be serving in some other capacity. But it is absolutely going to be serving in worship of our Creator God. I think about how do I need to humble myself and be like Isaiah. Woe is me for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips and I am among a people of unclean lips. Then I think God calls believers to descend. He calls believers and unbelievers to depend on God. Because He is the greatest. Christ is the greatest and Christianity is the greatest. And there's no legalism, no, uh, no paganism, no Judaism, no Islam, no whatever it is that's going to satisfy your soul. It is Christ and Christ alone and He provides you with pardon. I think about there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved, Acts 4.12.
Neither is there salvation among any other. And he says, Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth. No one comes to the Father but through me. You know, to say that all ways, all religious systems lead to God, that's a lie. It's a lie from hell. If Jesus is the greatest, and Christianity therefore is true, then every other system, and that's Jesus talking. I'm the way and the truth. So, and it exposes the superiority of Christ and Christianity validates the exclusivity of Christianity. So we, we apologize for it. No, we don't apologize for it. We don't puff ourselves up by it, but we don't apologize for it. You see, there is no religious system. There is no relationship that you can enter into. There is no possession you can have, no achievement you can gain, no pleasure that you can experience apart from the person and the work of Jesus Christ that will satisfy our soul. That's the Hebrews. They wanted to go back to Judaism. They wanted to try the old ways again and see if maybe there wasn't a better. No, there's no better way. You don't have to accept that way, but if you reject that way, then you reject the best way that God gave and the only way for us to be saved. You see, we depend upon him for life, crying out and saying, I'm a messed up sinner and I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I turn for my sin and I trust what Jesus did and that's where I depend upon you, Lord Jesus, to give me life. And then we depend upon him in life. We don't just depend upon him for life. We depend upon him in life. You know, he's not going to always keep us from harm. He's not going to always keep us from hurt. He's not going to always keep us from heartache, headache, or hardship. But he is going to see us through it. He is there with us in the middle of it. If we will turn to him and trust him. We have a superior Savior who sends his angels to serve us. And I think we should be encouraged by that. Through Christ alone, we experience provision in this life. I'm the bread of life, he says. He who comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. That's not a promise that you're always going to have bread to eat. It's a promise that he will satisfy your soul. He'll, he gives us protection. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 8. And he gives us peace. Finally, the supremacy of Christ not only causes us to descend, not only should propel unbelievers and believers to depend, but it should cause those who know Christ to defend the truth. If Christ is the greatest and Christianity is the only path to God, then we are called to defend it and declare it as the message the world needs to hear. Only one truth will set people free. John 18, 32. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the Son is the truth. He will set us free. Free from what? From our sin. From our selfishness. From our way of doing things apart from Him that leads us into a life of emptiness and lack of wholeness. We have to guard against heresy, and the reality of Christ's deity and supremacy validates the, the truthfulness of the gospel and of Christianity. So we have nothing to be ashamed about, nothing to be proud of, because he in his mercy rescued us, but everything to proclaim and declare to a lost and dying world. So I ask myself, and I ask you, because Jesus is the greatest, 
how will I descend? What does God call me to do to worship him in spirit and in truth, expensive worship for Jesus? How does he call me to depend? Maybe some of you need to put your faith or your trust in Christ and his death as a payment for your sin for the very first time. You're playing games with God, you know, because you're in church, you think, okay, well, that's good. I came to church, so I can pat myself on the back. I walk out and do nothing, nothing differently. No, he's asking for you to surrender. Not just show up, but to have control of your life. And you can do that simply by acknowledging your own sinfulness and turn from it and, and repent and say, Lord, take control. I invite you to be my Lord and Master. I trust you now as my Savior, and your death is a payment for my sin. Others of us need to just depend. I need you going through a mess. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is crazy. How can I get through this? I don't know, Lord, but I'm clinging to you. What does Job say? Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. And then to defend it. Folks, leave this place not ashamed of the gospel. Not proud that you are one of the chosen ones. Humbled by the fact that God would choose us. But powerfully empowered to share the gospel with the lost around us and not ashamed of the gospel. You see, every time we come together and we break this bread and we drink this cup, we defend and we declare the supremacy of Christ and the veracity of the gospel message. Because the preeminent Son of God descended to become the perfect sacrifice so that we who trust and believe in His death as the payment for our sins might become sons of God and enjoy the blessings of his kingdom. So every believer, as you sit here and pray and evaluate your heart and examine your heart and confess your known sin while our praise team is singing, before you come to take these elements, when you come, you should rejoice that you are part of the king's family and you're part of the supremacy of Christ and of Christianity, not arrogantly, but humbly. And those who don't know Christ... The invitation is for you to receive this great gift of salvation through Jesus. And so I'm going to invite our guys to come and lead us in song. And you prepare your hearts. And when you feel led, you're all invited to come and take of these elements. But don't do it in an unworthy manner. Paul cautions against it in 1 Corinthians 11. Search your heart. Examine your heart. And then take these elements in a way that you have your heart as much as you can clean before God. Let's pray. Father. I thank you for your son, Jesus, who is the greatest because he is your divine son who made salvation possible because he is our exalted ruler that we should worship and serve and because he is our eternal creator and we are the creation. Help us to take our place, the ordained plan of God, and worship and serve you. We thank you for your son's body broken and his blood shed that we might have life and be sharers of your kingdom. Even though you are anointed as the king and you have joy above your companions, we can share in joy as part of your family. We praise you and for it in Jesus' name.
I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean how marvelous how wonderful and my song shall Steve was, was preaching, I was reminded of the quote from David Livingston. He said, I never made a sacrifice. And um, how amazing it is that as we give back to God, um, he overflows our hands and, and he gives us more um, than we deserve. So let's just give thanks. Father, we thank you that you give us opportunity to give back to you, uh, to give back to this just wonderful, amazing Savior that you are. Uh, Father, may you, may you bless the work of our hands. May you encourage us this week as we go out, as we seek to be used for your kingdom. Um, Lord, may we daily bow our knee, bow our hearts to you, uh, to submit to your plan for our lives. Give us strength and courage to be a light for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.